Thank you for that. Uh, We greatly appreciate it. Uh, Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to Isaiah 42 this morning. Uh, We are continuing uh, our Christmas series looking at some of the prophecies about Jesus. Uh, And I hope you enjoy this as much as I have in that the Old Testament is important for believers. Uh, We are just not just New Testament Christians, although we do live in the fulfillment of the New Testament. Uh, But the Old Testament is just as much the Word of God to us as it was uh, to the saints that lived in that time. And so uh, what we need to see is that Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, was promised in His coming. And so we've looked at a few of them. Uh, We've looked at the promise of the seed. We've looked at the promise of the tabernacle. Uh, We've looked at the promise of light. And today uh, we are going to look at the promise of The servant. So let's read Isaiah 42 verses 1 uh, through 9 this morning. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will grow, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you and will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring forth the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak to us this morning from your word, that we would look forward to Christmas tomorrow with excitement as we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus, that we would rejoice in these prophecies that you have laid down hundreds of years before the coming of the Messiah, that we would look to Jesus and find their fulfillment in them, that we would find comfort and strength and hope, a tender and merciful Savior, a servant on our behalf. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly in his death and resurrection, and even now on our behalf in heaven. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Obviously, it's Christmas tomorrow, and I'm sure many of us are excited for Christmas. Uh, I'm sure maybe some of your kids are already counting down and looking to what they're getting. And if you put their presents out ahead of time under the tree, maybe they're trying to sneak a peek or, or they, they get up to them and they, they're about to touch them to see if they can rattle them. And there's just a, a joy and an excitement about the day. But let's take for a moment and just be honest and admit that sometimes for us, particularly as adults, Christmas can be hard to celebrate. 
particularly if you've lost a loved one or someone you know this year, uh, or if it brings to mind people that aren't there or perhaps things that have happened in your families over the years, there can be pain at Christmas underneath the joy and the smile that we put on. I find that this passage that we're dealing with today is of particular comfort because of this language of Jesus not breaking the broken reed and not snuffing out the smoldering wick. And so our main point this morning is that Jesus is the servant sent by the Father for us. He acts on our behalf and He comes as this servant, but He is sent by the Father. It is planned out from before the foundations of the world that the Messiah would come. And when He comes, He comes not as a king who conquers in triumph, but He comes as a servant who will lay down His life for His people. And so He is filled with kindness and compassion. He is filled with tenderness and goodness for us in the gifts that He brings. In the book of Isaiah, there are several larger themes going on in this section. One of them is what we call the servant songs. The songs of the servant. You are probably most familiar with this in Isaiah 53. This is the last one. This is the one where it culminates. And it culminates in the death of the suffering servant. But what we often don't know or don't pay attention to is that there are other short sections in Isaiah that have these songs, so to speak, sung or stated about the servant who is Jesus, the Messiah. And this is the first one. The second theme that is kind of going throughout this second uh, this passage of Isaiah is this idea of God being God and the idols being nothing. So you can see it in the last part of our verses in verse 8 and 9. He doesn't give his praise to the carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare before they spring forth. And one of the polemics is to the idols, hey, why don't you guys just tell the future? Just tell me one thing that's going to happen tomorrow or down the road. Just... One measly thing, and God then lays it out. I've declared the end from the beginning. I have laid out my entire plan. And so he's kind of, Isaiah here is kind of like uh, Elijah up on Mount Carmel. Remember when he taunts the worshipers of Baal? You know, just get Baal to do one thing for you. So Isaiah is saying and showing these idols are nothing and that God is everything by directing this polemic against them. And so God is the good God who sends His servant for our salvation. And that's probably the third theme that traces through these sections of Isaiah, the coming salvation. But our point again is that Jesus is the servant sent by the Father for us. So first this morning, if you're following along, because Jesus is the servant, He balances justice and compassion. Now, I don't know about you, but oftentimes in my life, it is extremely hard to balance justice and compassion. And, and even in the areas like disciplining my kids and, and, you know, you tend to go one way or the other. Sometimes you want to just really lay down the law. And other times, and my wife gets me on this one, she says, you know, your kids, you, they just have you wrapped around their finger. All you're doing is giving them compassion. 
All you're doing is rolling over for them and doing what they want. But the servant, Jesus Christ, brings together that perfect balance of justice and compassion. And thank goodness, because if God only brought forth justice in the servant, all of us would be judged. But if God only brought forth compassion in that worldly way where we just say, well, that's okay, whatever, it doesn't really matter, there would be no establishment of righteousness and justice. And so the servant balances both perfectly. So we see here at the beginning of this passage that God delights in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has delighted in Him. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So God sends his son as a servant according to his predetermined plan. He's chosen the son to come for a mission. But the father delights in this servant. And even while the Son of God is on the cross and He is praying, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And God is rightly pouring out the wrath that He has for our sins onto the Son. The Father is delighting in the ministry of the Son. And He delights in the person of the Son who would come and and sacrifice Himself. There is no tension and fighting between the Father and the Son. The Father saying, well, you really need to go down there. And the Son being like, well, you know, I don't think I really want to. No, there's a a perfect harmony. And if anything, in the Gospels you see over and over again how the Father delights in the servant who is the Son. At His baptism, this is My Son in whom I am well pleased. Even more than this, you see that this Holy Spirit comes upon this servant. The Father saying, I will put My Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. We can track this to other prophecies in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Isaiah 11.2 The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a prophecy put as if the Messiah Himself is speaking it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and to open the prison to those who are bound. So the Holy Spirit comes upon this servant. The servant himself doesn't come to show off. Now look at verse 2 if you would. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. I think this is similar to Isaiah 53 2 which says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So you think of how a conquering king enters into a city that he has just conquered and they come in with fanfare. They come in in triumph. They make sure that their 
voices are heard. They make sure that, that they are drawing attention to themselves. Sometimes they send out town criers ahead of them. Sometimes they have people just gathered around them. I think of the, the old Disney movie, Aladdin. And remember how Aladdin comes, comes into the city after the genie has made him a prince and they sing that, that song. And I won't even start to sing the Disney song, but I'm sure it, it's rattling through your head like it is through mine. And there's just pomp and circumstance and everybody gets, wow, this is, this is who it is. This is where it's at. Not Jesus. I heard a preacher say that Jesus isn't like the televangelist who shouts his name in triumph and wants to make sure that he gets all the attention, drawing everyone uh, to himself so that people will pat him on the back. Now, did Jesus have people coming to him for his ministry? Absolutely. But even in his ministering, he is meek and mild and, and humble. And he, you know, he has the little children sitting on his lap. And sometimes those of us who are adults and are prideful and seeking to draw attention to ourselves, we want the big and powerful to gather around us, not the little children. You also think how prophets often did conducted their ministry, and rightly so. They would go around shouting and crying out and calling people to repentance. So Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Jonah, going into Nineveh, it says in Jonah 3.4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I submit to you, Jonah was not whispering this. Forty days, Nineveh, it's going to be overthrown. He probably would have liked to because he didn't want to see these Ninevites get saved. But he has this ministry and this message. And yet, Jesus is different in his coming. He doesn't cry aloud or lift up his voice in the sense of drawing attention to himself. He comes lowly, humble, Broken-hearted, if you will. He often is telling people in the early days of His ministry, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Don't talk about this. Why would you do that? Isn't He the Savior of the world? Doesn't He want people to know and get saved? Absolutely. But people were expecting a Messiah who would be a triumph. A royal king who would crush the Romans and set up a kingdom of pomp and circumstance. They wanted to erect the tents and the thrones and, and bring all the glory and shout and triumph. And Jesus was here to be a servant. And Jesus' life was here to culminate in His death, which leads to His resurrection. And so we see Him as compassionate and tender. He's compassionate and tender. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed He will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So here again is this language of justice for, for the nations that we've seen in verse 1 already. But think about this imagery for a minute. Just ponder this in your, in your mind. A, a bruised reed. A, a reed that has been been bent over, perhaps even it, it's, you know how when a reed bends, it, it can get that kink in it? Kind of like you ever take a straw and you get a kink in it and then you can never perfectly straighten it back out again? A bruised reed 
that has been kinked over. It's not broken yet, but it, but it might as well be worthless. Did you ever have your kids playing with some of those things? They make swords out of grass or, or whatever, and the minute it, it breaks over, it's, it's broken, I can't use it, it's not good for anything. It's not torn off yet. The bruised reed is at its most tender and vulnerable spot. And the idea here is that people who are broken, the Lord is gentle. The Lord is careful. Think of the smoldering wick. Uh, Some of your translations in the one I read from earlier said a faintly burning wick. I, I think the imagery of smoldering is just more palpable. You think about that candle, right? And, you know, the, the flame has, there, there's no flame, but you see that little tiny red ember on there. And perhaps there's a, a trail of smoke coming up. And, and that flame is so tender that if you just go up to it and just talk a little bit, if you just say, oh, wow, look at that flame, that flame is snuffed out. If you try to pick that candle up and, and just gently move it across the room, that, that little bit of air, just that tiny, I am moving it along. That little movement of air risks blowing that candle out. This is not a, this is not a flame that'll, that'll flicker down. This is the, the, the smoldering wick that, that one tiniest puff of air threatens to blow it out. And these are the types of people that the Savior comforts and cares for. And if you have ever been in those situations where you feel like that, you probably know how Jesus responds to our needs. Um, Did you ever try to nurse that flame back to health? You have to really be careful and you you shield it. It's it's harder even than than getting a fireplace going on on a windy day. You have to be gentle. And, and comforting. It's kind of like being a doctor where the first rule of treating your patient is do no harm. Don't do anything to make it worse because the patient is, is weak and maybe on their deathbed and they, they need your help. But the last thing you want to do is apply the help so strongly that you make it worse. Sometimes when people are, go in and they, they need surgery, the doctor says, well, we can't do it right away because cutting them open, although it's what they need, would, would make it worse. And so we've got to nurse them back to health a little bit. And the doctor knows how to apply the right medicine, but not just the right medicine, but the right medicine at the right time. And we see how Jesus shepherds His people as the servant. Not only does He apply the right medicine, but in the right ways, in the right times. There are often times when we first get saved, we, we feel the weight of sin. But God doesn't sometimes expose all the weight of all of our sins in that moment. And so we get going along in our Christian life and the Holy Spirit convicts us in some ways and we feel worse than when we first felt when we got saved. And we go, why is this? Why all the conviction now? Because the Lord had to wait until you were growing in your faith so that He could apply the the deeper medicine and and root out those sins that go deeper. Uh, Brothers and sisters, don't feel bad when the Holy Spirit brings genuine 
conviction of sin as a believer. It's for your good. And it is, it is not to crush you. But it is like the doctor applying the medicine. Perhaps some of us have gotten to points in our lives where we felt broken. Where we felt at the end of our rope. Perhaps even struggling with, with spiritual depression. Perhaps struggling with physical symptoms of, of depression. And there's a, a time and a place to see a doctor for those things. But also, take note of the comfort of your Savior. He is this tender one. He is this perfect shepherd and servant who, who leads and guides. Come to Jesus. Have you ever been so broken that when someone tries to encourage you, and, and they, they mean well, but that tiniest bit of encouragement ends up making you feel worse. They say something like, oh, you know, just hang in there. Or, you know, God will get you through this. And, and it just, you go home and you turn that over in your head, and it just, they meant it perfectly, honestly, and well and good, and yet your emotions are in such turmoil that it just drives you deeper into your feelings. Jesus is that perfect Savior, is that perfect servant who in His words of comfort to you in the Gospel, He will not break you. He will not cause you to be snuffed out. He will sustain you. And He will uphold you. If you are going through some kind of trial, some kind of struggle, if Christmas is particularly gloomy this year, if you're in a constant state of, of spiritual depression of some sort, look to your Savior, Jesus. And if you're not in the middle of this right now, one, have compassion on those who are. Don't just think, well, they must not be a very mature Christian if they're going through this. But two, tuck this away in your head somewhere because chances are we will all go through periods where we don't know where God is working. Maybe we feel some of that spiritual depression. We're discouraged because we don't think that our prayers are being heard or answered. You will go through a point of brokenness in your life. And Jesus is the Savior who binds up the brokenhearted. Jesus is the servant who serves the meek and the lowly and the broken. And so we have Him not only coming to serve, but also to establish justice and reign and rule. And so we have here not just a king who comes and, and gathers around Him the rich and the powerful, but a king who comes as a servant. And part of His reign is, is gathering in the, the weakest and the lowliest and nursing them back to help and and building a kingdom out of people who are nobodies and nothings and who are the lowliest and raising them up. Isaiah 42.4 He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. I think this word here, discouraged, uh, probably could be better translated crushed. I don't think it's talking about like emotional discouragement, like He won't get emotionally discouraged. I think what it's saying is nothing will crush and defeat the plan and purpose of God establishing His purposes. 
He will bring justice. He will establish righteousness. And we look at the world around us today and sometimes we say, where is God? Where is He carrying out His purposes? And we just pray that prayer, and rightly so. Lord Jesus, come. Because this world is a mess. And yet the kingdom of God is advancing. And He is carrying out His work in saving people and bringing redemption and restoring lives and healing wounds and, and reconciling people not only to God, but to each other. Establishing peace. If you want to know what the real peace solution to the problems in our world, you think of like Israel and Palestine today. The real solution is not a two-state solution. The real solution is Jesus Christ. You think of in our own country, racial reconciliation that still needs to go on in some places and in some ways. The real solution is Jesus Christ. It is through union with Christ that we are not only made one with Christ, but we are made one with each other. This is an establishing of justice, an establishing of rulership, an establishing of a reign. And it spreads out into the coastlands. But the idea here is that the servant is patient and gentle as he moves his plan forward. It's coming. And it's advancing even now. I want to just show one passage in the New Testament where this is fulfilled. And it's Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. And Matthew 12, 15 to 21 actually quotes Isaiah uh, 42. And I want to just walk through the context just very quickly. First, earlier in the chapter, you have Jesus healing the man on the Sabbath. Here is the man who is broken. His hand is withered. Jesus says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches it out and the hand is healed. And of course, he gets in trouble for healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus has this compassion and tenderness to even the sick, to the lowliest, the people that need help, the people that the Pharisees were looking down on and saying, how dare that person want to get healed on the Sabbath? Don't they know that 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 would be work? And Jesus has so much compassion. Imagine how that man felt. I mean, he is there, you know, probably every day in the temple. Perhaps he was uh, often begging for help, for food, feeling horrendous, feeling like a nobody. When you're in that situation, you just want whatever help you can get. Just somebody do something for me. And these Pharisees are like, Jesus, you can wait till tomorrow to get healed or to heal this guy. That's got to be soul destroying, crushing. Don't you see I'm a cripple? Don't you see my life has been miserable? And you're just telling me, well, hang in there one more day and and the healing will be legit and, and kosher if we do it tomorrow. And Jesus just has this compassion, this this tenderness It's like elsewhere in the Gospels when he sees the people and he he breaks down weeping because why? They're like sheep without a shepherd. These broken and lonely sheep needing help and food and feeding and he just weeps with compassion. That is your tender Savior. And then right there you have people then going and they want to boast about this. They want to proclaim it. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 12, 15 and 16? Like, Don't tell people. It's exactly what I was talking about. The fulfillment of this verse. Like, don't say anything yet. 
Then Matthew quotes the verse, and then you have the incident where now the Pharisees say, well, he must be doing these miracles by demons. And we have the whole long uh, response by Jesus, but I just want you to note this. Obviously, it is the Spirit of God by which he's doing it. And so Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The Spirit of God is in Jesus, empowering Him for ministry. Could Jesus have done the miracles out of His divine nature? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Jesus had all His own power. Uh, He's truly God. But why the Holy Spirit? Why specifically? It's because Jesus comes as a servant. And He comes not in in the boldness of His own power, but in the meekness and humility that He relies on the Holy Spirit to empower Him. It's a, a further showing of His humbling. It's a further showing of His anointing by God that, that God has put Himself upon Him. It's a further showing of the work, of the unity of the work in the Trinity. Jesus often in the Gospels carries out His miracles, not by His own power, but in unison with the power of the Holy Spirit and in response to the working and guiding of God. It's a picture of how perfect a servant He really is. Second, this morning, because Jesus is the servant, He brings salvation and delivers people. So skip down to verse 6, if you will, in Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and a light for the nation. So, Jesus is given as a covenant and a light for the people and the nations. Jesus is given to be the Savior. So here we have in this passage... God calls forth Jesus in righteousness. God brings Jesus. He cares for Him. He keeps Him. He he guides His entrance, if you will, into the world. His hand is upon Him. The whole earthly life of Jesus is guided and guarded by the working of the Heavenly Father. We saw this in John's Gospel in Sunday school. Jesus saying, you know, my Father has always been working and now I'm working where He's working. There is this unity, this outgoing unity of the work. And so we have in our passage in verse 7 and also verse 8, this emphasis on the sovereignty of God. But notice here in verse 6 that Jesus is both a light and a covenant to both Jews and Gentiles. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I think here people is probably a reference to Jewish people. Oh, there's a little bit of ambiguity probably in, in the language. A light, though, also for the nations. I think what the picture is, it's the scope of salvation. See, we're, we're supposed to interpret covenant and light in, in similar ways. We're supposed to interpret uh, uh, people and, and nations in similar ways. It's the scope of what Jesus is doing. And it's for both Jew and Gentile. Jews would have been very familiar with the idea of the covenant. 
covenant given to Abraham. Covenant made at Mount Sinai. Now, here, the promise is that the very servant given is not merely the one who brings the covenant, but the one who is the covenant. It's fascinating when you think about this. On one hand, Jesus is the mediator, right, of the new covenant. He's he's the go-between, the intercessor, the one who's praying, the one who's seeing that we can come into the presence of God. He's that mediator, like the high priest in the Old Testament, bridging the gap, if you will. But on another level, He is Himself, the covenant. The bond that I have with God in my relationship with God is in and through Jesus Christ. I am united to Jesus Christ. He is the covenant that is given to me. He is the light. He brings revelation. He shows us the truth. Not only is God speaking through Him, but God is speaking in Him as the very person of God in the Son is here in our midst. And you think about the Jews who had uh, the knowledge of the prophets and the covenants and all of these gifts, but the light still needs to go out even farther. People that have never heard about the name of God, the living and true God, need to hear. And that's Gentiles. In our day and age, that's still people spread around the world even to the ends of the earth. But particularly in that day and age, that meant everybody outside of Jerusalem and the Promised Land. They don't know who God is. They're worshiping idols. They're pagan. They're living in all kinds of sins. And God is going to bring them light. The servant is going to bring them light. So we have at Christmas... When Jesus is taken to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day in accordance with the law, remember the old man he meets, Simeon? Remember how Simeon was waiting with that promise to to see the hope of Israel, the coming one, the Messiah? We don't know exactly how old Simeon was, and we don't know exactly how old he was when he got the promise versus how old he was when he saw the promise, but we know he was waiting every day. Waiting. Like, like sitting on the edge of your seat and here comes a baby. Could that be? The... Nope, that's not the one. Oh, 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 is it that one? No, that's a girl. It can't be that one. The Messiah is going to be a boy. Yeah. Uh, imagine that. And then one day, here comes Mary and Joseph walking in and the Holy Spirit speaks to Simeon. That's the one. And this is what Simeon says. For my eyes have seen your salvation. And they have prepared that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. The servant comes to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he is not just the means of bringing the covenant but he is himself the covenant. E.J. Young says this, one of the commentators I was looking at, he says this, to say the servant is a covenant is to say that all the blessings of the covenant are embodied in him and have their root and origin and are dispensed by him. Everything that I have and need to draw near to God 
comes in the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Christmas so important? Because if there was not Christmas, you and I would not be in a relationship with God. We would not be a part of the covenant. There would be no covenant, no establishment of the relationship. The best example in our modern day of a covenant is a marriage. We just had a small marriage ceremony here yesterday for a couple. And they make these vows and these promises. And then we say at the end, you know, you are one in interest. You are one in purpose. You are, you are united. The two become one flesh. That's a covenant. You're connected. And the only way to have a covenant bond with God is to have the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the covenant. And this is why in Isaiah he has to be the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But notice verse 7 of our passage. Jesus brings light and redemption. What is the purpose here? To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. God is saving people from their spiritual darkness, from their bondage and slavery to sin, opening our eyes and liberating us. And He does it in the servant. If you have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have never received Him as Savior, you are still in this bondage. You are guilty of your sins. But not only are you guilty, perhaps you feel the weightiness of sin. You feel the burden. Maybe it is leaving you discouraged and depressed and hurt and broken. Just like the human spirit breaks down when it is locked away in prison. So also when we are slaves to sin, we, we break down. And maybe your problem right now is sin. In your life. And you need a Savior. Or you need to again return to that Savior who you once confessed. And find Him to be tender and merciful. Find Him to enjoy liberating us from these sins. I think as an example of John the Baptist... John the Baptist does his ministry and then you'll remember he is sitting in prison. And he had proclaimed at Jesus' baptism as Jesus is coming down, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had made a profession of faith, if we can put it that way. And then he is sitting in prison. And you just think of the despair that that has to be. Uh, The ancient prison system was not like the modern prison system. Much, much more depressing. You're dependent on people for giving you food. I'm sure there were rats uh, in the prison and chains that he is wearing. Nasty stuff. And he is sitting there and he sends word to Jesus through his disciples. Are you the one who is to come? Or should I expect another? Think of that. John and the power of his ministry here. I don't think he necessarily is lacking faith. But I think there is a little bit of a crisis moment. Is this really the Messiah? What are we waiting for here? And what does Jesus say? 
Jesus answered to the disciples, Matthew chapter 11, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These are quotes and allusions to Isaiah. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongues of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 42, 7. Open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. And John, I'm sure, thinking through these things is going... Yeah, but where is the releasing from prison? I'm in prison. And Jesus says, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Isn't our Christian life often like that? Where is Jesus right now? Why is He walking me through this period of suffering, of trial? I trusted in Him. He's supposed to take care of me and I don't see it. Right now. And what does Jesus say? Don't lose heart. Don't think that I'm not walking with you through this. Don't think that I'm not caring for you, that I'm not upholding you, that I don't love you or something. Oftentimes, He walks us through the trial rather than walking us around it. But that doesn't make Him any less of a compassionate tender Savior. If you are going through something, know that Jesus binds up the brokenhearted. A smoldering wick He will not snuff out. How do we know this? How can we be assured of this? Because God is sovereign in all things. When He gives you this promise, you can be assured That He will keep it. And that brings us to the third point this morning. Because Jesus is the servant, God accomplishes His glory in Him. Isaiah 42.5 Thus saith the Lord who created the heavens and the earth and created the heavens and stretched them out and who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Who gives breath to the people and on it the spirit of those who walk. The idea here is saying That God alone is the Creator. Why is it that you woke up this morning and were able to draw breath? Because God is sustaining you. Paul says at the Areopagus before the pagans, in God we live and move and have our being. Everybody woke up this morning because God was sustaining their life. And so when God says, I'm sending my servant and this is what he's going to do, you can know that God is going to do it because he carries forth all of his plans. Just as he carries forth creation and sustains it and has spread it out by his mighty word. What word of God that he speaks is going to fall void? What word of God is going to fail? The answer is none. Nothing. How do I know this? Because God is God. The whole point of the Gospel is undergirded by a sovereign God who is God. Who controls these things. 
who seeks out to save his people unto himself, who accomplishes his purpose. And if God isn't God, then there is no gospel. And if you subtly in your thinking and your living and your actions rob God of his glory, you're in danger of compromising what the gospel is. The gospel is that God saves us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, we put our faith and trust in Him, but our faith and trust isn't something that we do to God or for God. It's a response to the gift that He offers us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is the one who accomplishes these purposes. God is the one who sets forth His plan. God is the one who carries it forth to the end. And so you have in verse 9, Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. God is saying through Isaiah, I am telling you what's going to happen. So that you'll know. So that when the Messiah comes, you're not just left like, well, gee, is this really Him? I'm not sure. God in Isaiah and throughout Scripture is described as declaring the end from the beginning. His purposes will stand. They will not be thwarted. You can't turn the hand of God. You can't stop God from acting. You can't call God to give an account to you and say, whoa, whoa, God, what are you doing here? God is not beholden to your whim. This is what the difference between idols and God are. Idols are things that are beholden to our whim. That we use them. That we get things out of them. That we can control them. In the ancient world, you set it up. You put it where you want It gives you what you want when you give it what it wants. And you continually go before it and you bow down in in the hopes that it will respond and give you things. In the modern world, we have things that we hold up in importance, that we think will fulfill our lives, that we think will give them meaning and value. They're like idols. That if I just pursue this, I'll be happy. If I just have some of that, I'll have all that I need. And the idol is really something that we think we can control and manipulate. If I invest in this, it will give me this back. God is not like that. So you have this wonderful verse in verse 8. I am the Lord. This is the divine name here. The I am who I am. The Jehovah. Yahweh. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God accomplishes His purposes, particularly salvation, so that He is the only one who gets the glory out of it. There is no corner of praise left for man. No glory left for other things in the accomplishing of salvation. It is only God. Let me illustrate this in this way. 
Because some of us might be tempted to think, well, that sounds kind of selfish for God to take all the credit. Who's God to get all the glory? Doesn't he share? Isn't sharing good? Is God selfish? If you've accomplished it, if you've done it as God has, you deserve the glory. When I was in high school and even some in college, I hated group projects. And you know why I hated group projects? Because you'd always, I, I was the nerd, I was the studier, I was the one, uh, you know, there were others often in my group too, but, but I really, I put a lot of pressure on myself. And there was always at least one person in the group that did the bare minimum. And sometimes they did less than them. Sometimes they did nothing. And you would turn in the project. And you would get a good grade. And that person would get credit. And you would make these projects or do the presentation or whatever. And, and you'd have somebody who you felt like the whole time, I am carrying their load. I am picking up their slack. And then the teacher would say to everybody, what a good team project. You, plural, you guys did great. You want to like pull out your hair. Of course, you can't say that. You know, well, like this kid deserves an F, but, but me and my buddy here, we should get the A. The glory is given to somebody else. And that's just a silly human example. But God does all the work. He gets all the glory. He is the infinite glorious one. And we go through life trying to get glory for ourselves. And we go through our thinking of salvation and try to give glory to how we responded. Well, shouldn't God be so thankful that I'm in church today? Are you here today for yourself and a pat on the back? You made it out on Christmas. Doesn't God know how busy the season is? Or are you here to give glory to God alone? You see, that's what lifts us out of the spiritual despair. I turn my eyes off of my circumstances. I trust the servant who is compassionate and tender. And I start giving glory to God. What a freedom it is when we can just praise God and He gives us that clarity of mind to just come and, and set aside those things that are real burdens that I'm not making light of, but He just gives us that, that clarity of thought to in that moment of praise and worship say, thank you, God, that you are awesome. That you can be losing everything else in your life and everything is falling apart. And He just gives you that vision of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, of the cross, the resurrection. And you say, if this is all I have, this is all I need because God is awesome. And you will get to heaven. And you will not regret any of the experiences of suffering here because you will be in the presence of God's glory. And all of that hardship, all of those times of wondering, was this worth it, will fade away like dust. Because God is glorious. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord,